A few years ago, I wrote my own parable. And I think I've shared it with you before, but I'm going to share it again this morning because it relates very well to the word that God's given me today. The parable goes like this. The kingdom of heaven is like two vineyard owners. The first vineyard owner inherited a beautiful, fruitful vineyard. And during the first year, he had a tremendous crop of grapes. And he sat back and he enjoyed the large crop of grapes and he earned quite a bit of money from them. But during that year, he did not water his vines. He did not fertilize them. He did not prune them. He did not do the work of a vineyard owner. The second year, he also had a good crop, not quite as good as the year before. Uh, By the third year, he had just a few grapes on his vines, and the fourth year produced less, and by the seventh year, the vineyard produced no grapes at all. The second vineyard owner was not like the first. The second vineyard owner began, actually, with no vines at all. But he took some seed and he planted the seed in good soil. And he gave it the proper amount of water and the proper amount of fertilizer. And in the first year, he had no grapes. But he continued to do the work of a vineyard owner. In the second year, he still had no grapes, but he continued to do the same things. He watered the ground. He gave it the proper amount of water and fertilizer. He put good, rich compost around these small growing vines, and he waited. He continued every day and every year to do the work of a vineyard owner, eventually pruning the vines until they grew. And in the seventh year, his crop of grapes was the largest crop In the whole valley. The first vineyard owner saw the fruit that his neighbor's vines were producing and he became embarrassed about what had happened to his once beautiful and fruitful vineyard. He began to worry about what his neighbors were going to think of him and he thought, I know what I will do. And he went out and he bought a bunch of grapes and he bought a bunch of string and he snuck out in the middle of the night and he tied the grapes. To all of his vines. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we we want to be a people who produce good fruit. Lord, I ask that as you speak to us today through your word, that you would make us more and more people like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. In Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45, this is what Jesus says. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. 
Jesus tells us that it is in the nature of a tree that determines what kind of fruit it will produce. An orange tree always produces oranges. It will never produce apples. And if the tree is healthy, if the parts of the tree, often that we cannot see with our eyes, the inside of it, if it isn't diseased, and if its roots have gone down deep, the tree will produce good fruit. A good tree produces good fruit. It is the nature of the tree that determines what kind of fruit it will produce, and it is the inner health of that tree that determines whether or not that tree will produce good fruit or bad fruit. And after Jesus uses this image, he tells us what it's referring to, and of of course, it's referring to people, to people and the health and the nature of our hearts. A good person will produce good words and good actions. Over these weeks, we're talking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and our our topic today is that a disciple of Jesus is a focused on allowing God to transform their heart. Part of the mission of God that we've been looking at over these past few months is that God is creating a kingdom community of people who have submitted their lives to him and who display his kingdom rule wherever they go. Jesus taught us as his followers to pray the Lord's Prayer, and in that Lord's Prayer it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And when a disciple, a follower of Jesus, prays this prayer, we pray that that would be true first, right here. Here on earth as it is in heaven, here in my heart, that it would be true that you would be Lord, that your kingdom would come, and that your will would be done right here in my heart. Throughout the Bible, and especially in Jesus' own teachings, there is a strong emphasis on this truth that our outward actions, our reactions to people and the circumstances in our lives, all of these outward behaviors flow from our hearts. One of the things that Jesus spoke to the religious leaders about over and over again was how they did all of these things to look good on the outside. The Pharisees fasted, and they made sure that everyone knew about it. They prayed, and they made sure that everyone knew about it. They gave their money, and they made sure that everyone knew about it. They looked like godly people on the outside, but Jesus said to them that your hearts are far away from God. And our temptation in our life is to always focus our attention on the outer heart, on the outer part, on our outward behaviors, because we are recognized by other people by our outward behaviors. And so we are tempted to focus our energy on managing our outward appearance, our outward behavior, so that we will be perceived by others in some way that we want them to. But Jesus is very clear. If we focus on our outward appearance, if we focus on our behavior, if we focus on managing and transforming our outward actions so that people will see us in whatever way we want them to see us, then our inner life will not be changed. It will stay the same. But if we focus our attention and our energy on the ways that God desires to transform our hearts and our inner nature, then right behaviors will flow out of that. Our hearts will produce good works and good actions. Right action will follow a heart that has been transformed. I think it's very easy for us to fall into the trap of focusing on the outer life, and we do this in all kinds of ways, don't we? 
We do this by the way that we talk to one another in church. We often use churchy kind of language. We use Christianese, and it, it, it kind of makes us feel like we're part of a club because we use a certain kind of language with one another that we don't necessarily use anywhere else. But we use it here, and it kind of defines us as this particular kind of group, this particular kind of people. We do this a lot of times at church by the ways that we hide our emotions. Sometimes there's this very wrong and dangerous notion that Christians are always supposed to be happy. And so we come to church and we're afraid to perhaps express our disappointments in our life or express things that we've experienced this past week for fear that somebody will find out that maybe we're not joyful all of the time. And now with social media, we have all kinds of ways, this whole other area of our life to manipulate what other people think of us, don't we? To make our life look like something that maybe it isn't. Gives us this ability to create a persona about ourselves that may not be true at all. We focus on the outside also in our churches. When we use certain sins or certain actions or certain behaviors to mark those people who are inside of the community and those who are outside of the community. It's a great uh, quote by John Ortberg. He's a pastor in Southern California. He says this. He says, The church that I grew up in had its boundary markers. A prideful or a resentful pastor could keep his job. But if he ever was caught smoking a cigarette, he would have been fired. This is not because anyone in the church actually thought that smoking was a worse sin than pride or resentment, but instead, smoking defined who was in their subculture and who was out of their subculture. As I was growing up, having a quiet time became a boundary marker, a measure of my spiritual growth. uh, If someone had asked me about my spiritual life, I would have immediately thought, have I been having a regular and lengthy quiet time? My initial thought was not, am I growing more loving toward God and toward other people? Boundary markers change from culture to culture, but the dynamic remains the same. If people do not experience authentic transformation from the heart, then their faith will deteriorate into a search for the boundary markers that masquerade as evidence of a changed life. It's a great uh, last sentence that if people do not experience authentic transformation from the heart, then our faith will deteriorate into a search for the boundary markers that masquerade as evidence of a changed life. The goal of the Christian life is not simply to look like a Christian. It's not to learn the things that are acceptable or not acceptable to our particular church culture and then live within those boundaries so that people will look at us and say, that's a good Christian person. The goal of the Christian life is the transformation of our hearts, that our inner nature would be transformed to be like the heart of Jesus, and that out of that heart would come forth good fruit, not only in our life in our church, but also in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. The attention, the focus of the disciple is on the transformation of our hearts by the power of his spirit, not modifying behavior. Our behaviors, our outward actions will become good and right if our hearts are good and right. And the promise of the Christian life is that our hearts can be transformed, become more like the heart of Jesus himself. 
We can, by the work of the Spirit of God in our life, as we make ourselves open to him, we can become like Jesus. More today than yesterday, and more tomorrow than I was today. The promise of the Christian life is that the Holy Spirit is at work in us if we are open to him and willing to allow him to, to change our inner nature so that our lives will produce real fruit. The transformation of your heart, your inner nature, is the focus of the Spirit's work. The Spirit is seeking to transform your inner nature to the point that not only do you do good and righteous things, but you desire to do them. This is what you want to do. You do not want to sin. You want to act rightly. If I put a carrot and a T-bone steak in front of my dog, which one is she going to choose? The T-bone steak every single time because it is in her nature. It is in her nature to eat meat. In our sinful nature, it is our nature to choose sin. But Paul tells us clearly we are no longer slaves to that sinful nature any longer. The promise of the Christian life is that the Holy Spirit is at work in you, transforming your inner nature, your heart, so that you will not only choose what to to do right by kind of gritting your teeth and begrudgingly doing it, but that you will become the kind of person who does good and right things. Does that make sense? I think for many of us, living a holy life means doing a bunch of things that we would rather not do and abstaining from a bunch of things that we'd rather do. <laughs> and so we do this battle with our flesh, and sometimes, sometimes we do just have to kind of grit our teeth and begrudgingly resist sin. That certainly is a part of it, but this, that's not the goal. That's not the goal of our Christian life. That's not the end. The end goal is that the Spirit would transform us so that we happily and freely resist sin and do what is right. That the Spirit would change and transform our inner nature so that we even routinely do what is right and good. This is the Holy Spirit's work in your life, in your present earthly life. Your day-to-day life, the Holy Spirit is seeking to make you the kind of person who routinely chooses to do what Jesus would do if Jesus were in your place. Uh, If you've ever read uh, Dallas Willard, um, uh, so much of what I've learned about discipleship comes from him. There's, uh, I believe, an audio book in the library called The Divine Conspiracy, a wonderful book about the Spirit's work of transforming our inner nature. The Christian life is not is not about living an outwardly acceptable life so that those around us will look at us and kind of nod approvingly. Jesus said that a good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces uh, bad fruit. It doesn't do the grapevine any good to tie grapes up onto it. What the grapevine needs is tending. What the grapevine needs is tending. In order for a grapevine to grow and to produce fruit, it must be tended to. So let's consider a little bit this illustration of the gardener and the grapevine. We moved into a house about a year ago. Um, I am looking forward to having a garden. In the past, I have proved to be a terrible gardener. Um, If you ask Gloria today, uh, Gloria, what kind of gardener is your dad? She'll say, my dad is a lazy gardener. Okay, she's learned that. Okay, I've, I've shown that to her. But I hope to do better. So let's suppose that I decide that I want to grow a grapevine in my backyard. Let, let's suppose that I put seed in the ground and the grapevine starts to grow. 
On one level, on one level, if we think about it, there's absolutely nothing that I can do as a gardener to make that seed grow. The fact that the seed exists at all, the fact that that seed has the potential to grow, I haven't done that. That's a work of grace. That is God's work. I can't do anything to make that seed grow. The fact that that seed can transform the soil and the sun and the water into energy so that it grows, that is a miracle, isn't it? That is God's work. But on another level, as a gardener, if I want that grapevine to bear fruit, there is much work that I can and should do, right? In fact, if I want it to grow, I must do it. If I want it to produce fruit, I must do it. I will need to prune it. I will need to fertilize the soil. I will need to put it up on a trellis so that it doesn't just lay on the ground where the fruit might grow but will rot quickly. As a gardener, I cannot make a seed grow into a grapevine. That is all grace. But as a gardener, there are many things that I must do if I want that vine to grow properly. If I want it to bear fruit, there are many things that I can and I must do. The same is true with our life in Christ. Growth in the Christian life takes effort, and it takes work. It takes our energy, and it takes our decision, and it takes our intention, and it takes our will. Sometimes we get nervous when we start talking about works and effort in the Christian life, but we shouldn't get nervous about this. You know, we declare we are saved by grace and not by works, and that is absolutely true. And on one level, just like there is nothing that can, a gardener can do to make that seed grow, there is nothing that we can do on our own to transform ourselves more into the image of Christ or to be saved at all. But God, in his mercy and in his way, has chosen to take our effort and to take our work and to take our decisions and to make that a part of our growth. Listen to Paul, if you don't believe me. Uh, listen to Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my dear friends, continue to what? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Later in chapter 3, Paul says, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, effort, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 9, do you not know that in the race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way that gets the prize. Run in such a way that gets the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I beat my body and I make it my slave. This is work. This is effort. Second Peter says this, Make every effort. To add to your faith goodness, and to your goodness knowledge, and to your knowledge self-control, and to your self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Make every effort to add these things to your life. God's grace in our lives is not opposed to our effort. For the follower of Jesus, we know that our entire lives are lived under his grace. 
The follower of Jesus knows that our breath is God's grace. The fact that I woke up this morning from my sleep is God's grace. One of my teachers said, uh, a believer in Christ uses up grace like a 747 uses fuel on takeoff. The follower of Jesus knows that all is grace and that there's a lot of it and then it's not running out anytime soon. And the plan and purpose of God is that by and through God's grace and according to our effort and to our work, we will grow up into the reality of our salvation. We will grow into it more and more. God's grace is not opposed to our effort. So I want to finish today by talking about some of the effort that is required for our spiritual growth. And there are many, 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 many things that I could talk about on this topic. And certainly in coming years, you will hear more about this topic. But here's what I want to say today. Your spiritual formation, the transformation of your heart, is something that happens every day. It's something that happens every day. And I guess I'm saying this to kind of contrast this to the idea that our transformation happens primarily at church or at retreats or spiritual conferences or Bible studies or mountaintop experiences. Of course, all of those have a vital and important part to play in our spiritual life, a vital part to play. But what I want you to consider today is the fact that the primary place where God works to transform your heart more into the image of Christ is in your everyday mundane, day-to-day routine. It's there in the context of your everyday life where you are being formed spiritually for good or for bad. Your heart is always being formed by the things that you do, by the things that you hear, by the things that you see. I'm going to, uh, to show you a short movie clip here. I don't do this very often, but um, it's from the great movie Karate Kid. Okay? <laughs> doesn't get much better than The Karate Kid. And um, if you remember in The Karate Kid, uh, Danielson goes to Mr. Miyagi and he says to him, I want to learn from you how to do karate. And what's the first thing that Mr. Miyagi does? He says, come over here and wax my cars for me. Okay, and so Danielson waxes the cars and then he has him sand the floor and he has him paint the fence. He has him do all these chores. And right before this scene that we're going to watch, Daniel is so angry. All I've done, I came to you to learn karate, and all I've done are these chores for you. And here's where Mr. Miyagi teaches him a lesson. The floor. Sand the floor. Big sucker. Sand the floor. Sand the floor. Now show me wax on, wax off. Hey. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Hey, wax on, hat. Wax off, Concentrate. Look in my eye. Lock a hand. Thumb inside. Wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Wax on. Wax off. Show me paint the fence. Up, down. Up, down. Up, down. Other side. Look, I always look, I. Show me paint the house. Side, side. 
Blacklist. Save, 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 save. Show me wax on, wax off. Show me side of Show me sand of Daniel had no idea that the things that he was doing with his body, the actions that he was taking, was training him for something. Our spiritual formation happens every day, even when we do not realize it. And so one of the things that we must do is to decide and to be intentional about what we are doing with our bodies, what we are doing with our time, what we are doing with our energy. I suspect that all of you have some kind of routine that you do every day in your life without even thinking about it. What's the very first thing that you do when you get up in the morning? Eat breakfast, get coffee, check Facebook, pray. What is the very first thing? And then as you go about your day, what is your routine? What do you do on on Wednesday evenings? In your life, in your rhythm of your weekly life, do you have a day of rest where you, where you sit back and not work and instead enjoy God and family? Let's go back to this grapevine illustration. If you want a grapevine to grow well, you have to put up a trellis. A trellis is a structure that allows the grapevine to grow in the direction that the gardener wants it to grow in. The gardener builds this trellis, and the vine naturally then grows along this trellis. The daily and weekly and yearly practices of your life are the trellis of your spiritual life. If every evening your night is spent watching TV, your spiritual life will be shaped for better or for worse, along that, uh, along that trellis, according to that practice. If every morning the first thing that you do is to check Facebook, then your spiritual life is being shaped, for better or for worse, by that practice. If every week you, you take a day of rest, if, if you pause every single week to take a day to commit to, to pausing from your work and from your own efforts and to take a day to enjoy and to rest in the grace of God, that is a practice that is shaping you for better or for worse. The daily and the weekly and the yearly practices that you engage in are the trellis of your spiritual life. They are causing you to grow in a particular direction, whether you are aware of it, whether you are intentional about it or not. And so as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, we must be intentional and make some decisions about what kind of practices and rhythms we are going to have in our life to help us to grow into Christ-likeness. And there are all sorts of spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices that we can commit ourselves to. Certainly, Bible study and prayer, practicing a weekly Sabbath, the practice of silence, 
Simply spending time, maybe every day for, for maybe 10 or 15 minutes, or maybe to take a day once a month to simply be quiet can help to train us to be a people who are patient and a people who learn to control our tongues. The practice of fasting from food isn't for the sake of fasting, isn't for the sake of being hungry for the day. It's to train us to be a people of self-control, a people who do not, who are not controlled by their stomachs. As you look at your life, your daily and your weekly routines and rhythms and practices, what are you growing toward? What kind of trellis are you building? Your everyday life is where you are growing more and more to be a person who desires what is good or where you are continuing to grow and foster your sinful nature. Your everyday life is where your heart is being cultivated to be healthy and Christ-like and fruitful or where it is cultivated toward something else. In addition to our daily routines and practices, the Bible is also clear. There's something else that happens to us in our daily lives where God is seeking to use that as as an opportunity to shape us and to train us and and to transform us. Turn with me to James chapter 1. The Bible is clear, and James, I think, says it best, that the daily trials and frustrations of our life is a place where God is at work. James 1, verses 2 through 4. James says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, mature and complete, not lacking in any things. In our day-to-day lives, we face trials. Not just big trials. James isn't talking about just big trials here, a death in the family or health problems or a divorce. He's talking about all kinds of trials. We face trials of many kinds every day. Sometimes just getting up in the morning is a bit of a trial, right? Every day we face all kinds of trials. And what James says here is that in the everyday trials of your life, God is at work in them, developing perseverance in you so that you will become mature. We often see our trials and our disappointments as somehow an obstacle to growing in Christ. This is a frustration, and so, so I get angry, I get frustrated about it. We have a person maybe in our life who is really annoying or is really against us, and so much of your thoughts are about this person, and maybe it, helps you, it keeps you up at night, and it's just draining your, your energy. We all have had people in our life like that, right? Or maybe it's a physical problem, you're in pain, or you're sick a lot, or, or maybe you have money problems, you're having a tough time making ends meet. All of us have trials of many kinds, and we usually see these things, this person, or this circumstances, or this health problem, or these money problems, we see them as obstacles to focusing on Christ. We think if we didn't have this money problem, then we could serve Christ better. If this person wasn't draining all of my energy, if this person was out of my life, then maybe I could focus more on what I need to be focused on. Then I would be a better follower of Christ. We see the trials many times as barriers to Christ-likeness. That is the opposite of what James says here in James chapter 1. The trial is not a barrier. The trial is the very 
thing that God is using to develop Christ-likeness in you. The trial is not a barrier so that you can get on then after you've passed that to the real spiritual growth, the real service to Christ. That obstacle, that frustration, that disappointment, those money problems, those are the very thing that God is using. And so when you're faced with a difficult person, the question becomes, how has God allowed this person to come into my life for the purpose of making me like Jesus? How can I practice being like Christ right now? How can I learn to turn the other cheek? How can I learn to pray for this person because Jesus tells me to pray for my enemies? I have money problems. In what way is is God seeking to use this present circumstance to train me to trust him more? The trials of our life is one of the primary places that God uses to develop his character in you. They are not obstacles to growth. They are the very things that cause us to grow. The kingdom of God is like two vineyard owners. Have you become a lazy vineyard owner? Has your spiritual life resorted to simply tying up grapes onto your grapevines so that you're perceived by others in a certain way? Or are you doing the work of a good vineyard owner? Have you received the gift of God's grace in your life? And now are you making, as Peter says, are you making every effort to grow in the knowledge and the truth of that grace and to grow up to be more and more like who Jesus is?